Driving inclusion and respect at Deloitte. According to Catalyst Inclusive Leadership Report, 45% of employees' experience with inclusion is directly linked to their manager's behavior. In the report, Catalyst outlines five key drivers impacting inclusion in the workplace, which are value, trust, authenticity, psychological safety and expressing different views, and psychological safety and being able to take risk. Globally, there's a paradigm shift in the employer, employee, and talent social contract. This shift means that leaders must lean in with empathy, respect, inclusive behaviors to attract and retain top talent in a tough labor market. Welcome to the Diversity Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Audra Jenkins, joined by my co-host and partner in crime, Chris Berg. Today, we're speaking with the phenomenal Emma Codd, who serves as the global inclusion leader for Deloitte. Emma's work in this role includes a focus on respect and inclusion, which includes the Can You See Me campaign, gender balance, LGBT plus inclusion, mental health, including the implementation of mental health baseline globally, and becoming the founding partner of the Global Business Collaboration on Better Workplace Mental Health. Prior to her current role, she was the managing partner for talent for Deloitte LLP in the UK and sat on the firm's executive committee. During this time, Emma led a period of significant change for the company from a diversity inclusion perspective, including the firm's award-winning approach to respect and inclusion, a culture change program that underpinned all of their actions on diversity. Welcome, Emma. Thank you so much, Audra and Chris. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us. We are so excited to have you and we truly appreciate your time. Shall we just jump in? Yes, please do. Okay. So Emma, you are truly a global EDI champion. I am fangirling out because I'm such a huge fan of all the wonderful work you do and your team has accomplished at Deloitte. Can you share with our audience, how did you come to work in diversity inclusion? Was it this your passion before it became your career? Yes, it's a great question. And yes, it was a passion before it became my career, as I think actually is the case for many DEI pioneers and change makers that are out there. Actually, so I'm a history graduate. I'm not going to spend hours boring you with my younger years, but I'm a history graduate, graduated actually in Eastern European history many, many years ago before the Iron Curtain came down and everything changed. It was an unfortunate incident that sort of made my life become the way it was. I suffered from severe endometriosis when I was younger, and we can talk about that later. For those of you who don't know, it's a very severe menstrual disorder, so it's just pretty horrible. And I, the night before my university finals, I collapsed in the street in pain. And they took me into hospital, and they took my appendix out, because apparently endometriosis didn't exist then, or at least it only existed for menopausal women, which is a whole different conversation. So the result was literally I missed doing my finals, and... I decided that you know, obviously I wanted to go back and do them the following year. But in the meantime, what did I do for that year? So I got a job for an American investigation company, a company called Kroll. And I was like the person that did the filing and answered the phones and did anything. And I just developed this love of investigating and finding stuff out and fixing things. And, and that's sort of where my career went. So I went after I graduated, I sort of worked for a couple of boutiques my mid-20s had my own business with a business partner. We sold it to another company. I stayed there three years. And in 1997, I joined Deloitte. And I joined Deloitte in the UK, and I joined with the intention of staying for three years. So I was a total millennial before my time, and that I would sort of be somewhere, and then I'd get a bit bored and want to care. I think there was a whole change maker thing embedded in me at the time. So yeah, I joined with the intention of staying three years. Obviously, we're now, that was 97, we're now 
2023, still there, made a partner in 2003 and around about 2005, 2006, an amazing woman, Sharon Thorne, who is our global chair, she became a bit of a sponsor of mine. She took a UK talent leader role and she said, right, I'm going to set up some diversity networks. And she tapped me on the shoulder. I was at that stage a very junior partner. And she said, would you like to be sponsoring partner of the Women's Network? At which I said, yes, please, because I'm absolutely passionate about the whole gender equality subject, having been the only for much of my career. And really the rest was history. That became, I led that until... 2013, when David Sproul, who was our CEO, asked me to join his executive and his leadership team and become managing partner of talent, which obviously you mentioned in your intro. Now, at the same time as that, I was doing client work. So that's really how I built my name. I, would, I was advising clients on emerging market risk and anti-corruption and all of that side of things. So I did that, at, it's, you know, as often happens, give a busy woman a load of stuff and she generally does it really, really well. I also had twin daughters at the time I took that role. My girls were four years old. So it was a big decision for me, but loved the job. And then so it became moved into my global role when David moved out of his CEO role in 2019. I became the global diversity, equity and inclusion leader. And I'm still there today. So I have a lot of people I meet and they say, how did you get to where you got to? And can you tell me what planning you did? And honestly, I did no planning. It's the most circuitous route, I think, ever to this sort of role. But I have so much lived experience. I think lived experience pays such a big part. And I'm a fixer. I can't help it. I find problems and I like to fix problems. And so I think that's probably what also made me just find a new passion. So I don't advise clients on integrity or corruption risk anymore. Instead, I spend lots of time talking to clients about how we can all be better when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion. And I lead on that globally for Deloitte when it comes to our own organization as well. Wow, that's amazing. That just shows there's no direct path. I mean, we all have our ways of getting there. And what an amazing, and I love the the commentary about the sponsorships. I mean, every time you had a great move, you had a sponsor involved. And that was really, really powerful. Thank you for sharing that, Emma. So my next question is, I have to say, Emma, one of the the biggest things, one of the reasons I'm a huge fan of Deloitte is because of not only the diversity inclusion work, but you came out with this Can You See Me campaign. These videos are so incredibly powerful, thoughtful, authentic, your team have really created a masterclass on the business case on why being seen, visible is key to being valued and respected. When you started these campaigns and videos, did you ever imagine the impact they would have, especially for people who've been historically marginalized, whether it's disability, LGBT plus community, gender, race, color, socioeconomic status? You've definitely hit it out the park with all those topics in those campaigns. Yeah, I mean, thank you. And I'm so glad you love them. I really love them. They were a labour of love for me and my team. So did I ever imagine the impact? Look, I am a firm believer, actually, after some work I did in the UK when I was in my UK role, I'm a firm believer in storytelling and the power of storytelling. I love to tell a good story. I love to hear a good story. It just draws me in and engages me. I'm a big fan of data as well, and we can talk about that later because I think you need a combination of both things. But with Can You See Me, we were looking from a global perspective 
at what can we do to really to educate and to get people to understand the impact, the unintended impact of their actions and words. And really, it was a big focus for us around microaggressions. And as I said, you know, in the UK, we'd had a real focus on this. And one of the critical ways that we had engaged with leaders and others was through storytelling and making people aware of, look, this, this is what's happened. This is the outcome, the sort of start, middle and end. We wanted to translate that for everyone around the Deloitte world. And the best way to do that was really to get lived experience, both from our own people and from people outside our organisation. So, you know, people that just work in business. So to get lived experience, put it together and really create these very powerful stories, which are an amalgam of lived experience. So each of the characters is fictional. They are played by actors, but the actors themselves have lived experience and identify with the character that they are playing. And the stories themselves are so powerful. And I remember we created them for our own people. We didn't, and our own leaders, we didn't to start with. The intent was never that we'd release them externally. But the reaction we got from our own leaders and our people when our CEO actually released the first five in the series, and it was extraordinary. It was like the floodgates open from people with lived experience saying, this was my life. This is the, this bit that happened. This bit that happened. You know, we have people saying, you know, I was in tears, but in a good way. And that was the whole purpose of them. I think, you know, you talked about empathy in, you know, in your introduction. For me, it's sort of engaging the empathy. It's getting people really to live, to walk in someone else's shoes is so important. And so the impact has been incredible. For me, part of what I do, I'm blessed and that I have this incredible job. And wherever I can, it's the ability to share what we create and what we use with people outside our organisation. And so wherever I can do that, we do. And that's a real Deloitte ethos, this sort of impact on wider society as well. And those films are a classic example of where that's happened. We have had so many people. I mean, for me, Jackie's story and Peter's story, Jackie's story still has me in tears every time I watch it. And actually, when we were creating it, I had my children. My children watched the stories with me. And my girls at that stage, you know, just sort of very, they were, you know, before teen years, but old enough to really understand what the world can be like for some people. And I thought it was really important that they saw these things as well. And it was extraordinary to see how moved an 11-year-old would be as well by this stuff. So I think power of storytelling, this stuff is real. This stuff is real. The more we can educate, because I do believe that a lot of microaggressions, think about the microaggressions, what is it, often unintended, seemingly small. So if you focus on the often unintended, how is it unintended? Well, it's unintended because of a lack of education and a lack of awareness. And I, so I truly believe that's a big part of my role is to educate and raise awareness. And that's what was so important about Can You See Me? And still continues to be. I hope they will live on for many, many years, way past when I'm, you know, not doing this work anymore. Absolutely. Emma, one of the things I think is critical, especially for diversity practitioners, is anywhere in the world, is this work is your head work and your heart work. And if you don't have both of those in there with the empathy, with the understanding, with that powerful messages through stories and getting people to connect, it's hard for them to see the human side 
of this work and not just a tick the box exercise. It's not just, oh, here's something else our company is making us do, but it's more so this matters. And that's what Deloitte has beautifully done with this, you know, the Can You See Me campaign. You show your actions and words matter. And kudos again for that. Thank you. So, Emma, I want to just want to say also, beyond the impressive awards, one of the ones that stood out to me is last year, Deloitte ranked number seven worldwide on Fortune's World's Best Workplaces. What role do you think diversity, inclusion, and respect played in Deloitte's achieving this recognition? Oh, I think it played a big role. Look, these sort of things, these benchmarks, these global benchmarks, they, a big part of, of that benchmark is based on what your people think about you. Because a huge part is based on surveys of individuals. And, and the surveys, and actually in this particular case, the survey is really extensive. There's a lot of questions about how you feel as an employee, and you want as many people as possible to complete that. And so for me, if we didn't have the focus we had on diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think if people don't feel included, they're generally not going to go in and fill out the survey when they're asked to. They're generally not going to engage. They are not going to feel valued. They are not going to be as productive. They're not going to be excited about the future. All of these things that just will come from getting that right. So I think it played a massive part. I and mean, we, we, you know, our global DEI strategy is we have very clear focus under a number of pillars, including mental health. So we actually have mental health under inclusion. And that, for me, is another big part. And I think, you know, we can talk a bit about that later, but but that our focus on mental health has been so impactful and so important as well. So in brief, I think it played a very significant part, as did all of the other great stuff we do for, you know, as an organisation, our great learning and development and all of the things that you would really expect to be in place and are in place. But it's the stuff that often people expect to be in place that when they get into an employer, they realise actually it isn't. And that's the bit that I think that played a real part for us in, you know, this great accolade. Absolutely. And and well-deserved and well-earned, Deloitte. So kudos again. I think that's phenomenal, Emma. Thank you so much. I'm going to pass it now to my co-host, Chris Rourke. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Emma. Really enjoying all of this uh, conversation so far and looking forward to hearing more. So when we look at Deloitte, Deloitte has a lot of employees, roughly 415,000 globally. Over the past three years, we've seen thousands of women exiting the workforce for various reasons, COVID-19, the great resignation, quiet quitting, and anything else that we could probably come up with. In Deloitte's 2023 Women at Work report, which has so much data and insights in it, to your point about the insights, it's an amazing report and highly recommend reading it. One of the points that we read was that 35% of women rate their mental health and well-being as poor or very poor. And many women feel more stressed out today than a year ago. How are you prioritizing and addressing these issues today at Deloitte? Yeah, Chris, thank you. And it's great to meet you as well. Oh, this is huge for us. And as you said, in the Women at Work report, the findings this year, the findings last year were really very, very bad. They are as bad this year. So the burnout numbers actually are slightly better. Last year, the big, one of the big, piece of information we got out, one of the big headlines was around the massive amount of burnout that was out there. This year, that number has come down. So it's it's only around 30%. I say only, it should be nobody. 
but it was around 30% of the women that we polled, and that's 5,000 women, you know, across 10 countries, a lot. And so the burnout number came down slightly, but actually, as you said, you know, the stress and anxiety numbers and are really bad. And then the one thing that I really worry about is the data in there. One of the questions we ask is, you know, how do you feel about the support that you get from your employer? Do you get adequate support when it comes to your mental health? We ask whether you disclose if you've had to take time off for mental health and, you know, how freely you feel able to talk about your mental health in work. That data really had a massive drop this year. So if you think about it, you've got this picture of growing stress and anxiety. You've got women really concerned about their mental health. Oh, and by the way, you've got them always on more of the time than they were even last year. So it's not a good picture. So what do you need in place? You need that support in the workplace. And unfortunately, that's the bit where the women that we polled are saying, I don't even want to access it, let alone, yes, it's not adequate, but guess what? I'm not going to tell anybody about how I'm feeling. Now, that could in part be due to the economy. We don't know why. We don't know what's driving that. But obviously, with any downturn, any concerns, of, you know, if your company is going to make layoffs, will you... Would you think twice about disclosing? You might do. And I would hope that would never happen with our organisation. And that brings me on to our organisation and what we've done. So 2019, we made mental health a global inclusion priority. Now, prior to that, we had done some really good stuff in various countries. So the UK, when I was in my role there, there was some amazing work done by my team and by you know others outside my team We had exactly the same huge amount of work in our US organization, lots of work in in places like Australia and the Netherlands, but but we didn't have a global voice on this. We didn't have consistent messaging. We didn't really talk about it. We didn't use consistent language. For me personally, it was extremely important that we use the words mental health because this is a big part of the challenge that we have is the stigma that is attached to those words. And the reality for many of us when our mental health is challenged, often it is with stress and anxiety. And often that can turn into something that then it takes a long time to recover from. Hopefully for many of us, that doesn't happen. Hopefully if we are able to access adequate resource, we're able to slow down, we're able to take some time out, we're able to maybe adjust our working patterns, then we can actually address it. The problem is, is that many people don't feel able to raise it at work. And partly it's using those words. And, and, you know, so so for us, it was, that was basic number one lesson was we are going to use the words mental health. And a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that because of they associated it with severe mental illness. Well, yes, that is part of your mental health. Your mental health is on spectrum. You're not just ill or well. There's a whole range in between there. But it was important we talked about it. It was also important that in every country where we operate, we have a consistent foundation. And I will say many countries where we operate, we operate in over 160 countries around the world. And in you know many of those, we didn't talk about mental health. It wasn't really out there. Leaders weren't really talking about it. We basically have implemented what we call a mental health baseline, which my team has done an incredible job on implementing. And that is now in place globally. So in every country, we have the basics. We have a foundation that's been around educating leaders, educating our people, leaders talking about it. The more you talk about it, the more you normalize it. Sharing resources, making sure that's available to people, and then also using data. So basically asking your people how they feel, tracking whether there's any change, and actually work out where your challenges are. 
and how you can deal with those. So it is huge for us. And the reason it's under inclusion, I believe it's very important that it should be under inclusion for us on a global basis. The reason it is, is because so much of it comes down to culture and comes down to the everyday culture. If I'm feeling stressed and anxious, will I disclose? Well, I will disclose if there's empathy there. I will disclose if I think it's not going to mark me out. I will disclose if I feel I'll be treated justly and fairly and with respect. And so that's so important that it sits within that whole sort of culture arena. I love that you talked about if we talk about it and we use the right words, it normalizes it. And it's so true. Just seeing that in this conversation and thinking about normalizing it. (laughs) Burnout and stress and anxiety are, women are struggling with that a lot, but we're also struggling with the effects of menopause and talk about stigma and taboo. It's been taboo topic in many organizations, which cause us to suffer in silence and other things that we we, may not be aware of. So what can organizations do to support women who are going through menopause to mitigate any impact on their career? from your point of view. Thank you for asking this because I think it's so important. And I actually, this year in the Women at Work survey, for the first time we asked questions around women's health and we asked around menstrual health. So we asked around menstrual disorders, sort of pain associated with periods and menstruation. And then we asked about menopause and what that came back. And we know it's deeply personal for people and it is absolutely a person's choice as to whether they want to disclose anything to an employer or to someone that's asking survey questions. So well aware of that. But my challenge is that people don't disclose often because of the stigma that exists and the taboo. So we ask these questions, a quarter of the women we polled, a quarter of 5,000 women said that they suffer from pain or discomfort or adverse symptoms associated either with menstruation or menopause. So that's a massive number. And then if you look at the menstrual disorder side, and it's something I identify with very personally, having, I was one of those women that took eight years, probably more than eight years for diagnosis. My parents were told that I should see a psychologist because my parents were told that I was making it up because I had middle child syndrome. By the time somebody operated on me, I had grade four endometriosis and was my insides were oh, no. an utter mess. And I had been for years and years and years. I knew I wasn't making it up. I knew there was something really badly wrong that was, you know, I knew it was hideous. So, and for me then in the workplace, I never really disclosed it. I had a series of treatments that didn't work. I had some some that did work. As you know, there is no cure for this at the moment. There needs to be. But I never disclosed it to really to my employer because I didn't want to be branded as someone that was a problem. And because mainly my bosses were male. And then, I would, and then I would have to have that conversation and use the word period, which I didn't want to do. And so I totally get the fact that 40% of the women we polled that suffer from adverse symptoms associated with menstruation, they suffer in silence. They don't tell anybody. I totally get why that is. But I think we have to normalise the conversation. We have to normalise it from an early age. You know, I've got two teenage daughters. They get very embarrassed because I talk about periods a lot. But it's really important that we talk about them because guess what? They happen and they're a part of life. And for some people, they're really super easy. It's fine. But for some women, that's not the case. And the workplace at the moment is not set up frequently for somebody that, say, needs to take five days off every month. Really, how is that going to impact on them? 
and then we come to menopause and I appreciate the first question around menopause but I think it's also interlinked as somebody that is in menopause now I think there's a big thing around stigma removal and around education here so I many of the symptoms that I got and I was in early menopause as well because of all the treatments that I was on for my endometriosis and and when I was in early menopause years and years ago I I really only got the hot flushes I didn't really get anything else or I didn't realize I got a bit of osteoporosis as well but as I went into it later stages, I honestly, the range of things that hit me and nobody, not even my doctor, associated it with menopause. And so so I think there's a big thing around educating, educating people who are going to go through menopause. Look, these are things to look out for. And then it's enabling people to have a conversation, to listen, to understand what menopause is. We do some amazing things at work. I just took part a couple of months ago in an amazing call that our financial advisory business did. And they did a whole call on menopause. And I talked about my story. Another fellow partner talked about her story, which was very different from mine. We had an amazing menopause expert in there. And and there were loads of men, well, all genders were on this call. It was amazing and so open. And the conversation carried on afterwards. That's what we have to do. It doesn't cost anything to do this. It's just talk about it, recognize it's out there, recognize the impact it can have on people as well. And unfortunately, particularly for women, guess what? It typically takes us longer to get to the top in our careers. And what happens? We get to the top and yes, it coincides with this massive onslaught of awful symptoms. So I think businesses have a responsibility to talk about this. And not to the point where you're embarrassing people, but just destigmatize it. The same as mental health. Use the words. Okay. It's exactly the same. Use those words. Talk about it. Yep. I love that you said, again, saying use those words. I think you also hit on a great point is by doing those calls, your people don't feel alone and then they're able to talk about it more. And I love the fact that you also talk to your daughters about it. I actually talked to my sons about it. <laughs> So they know what's happening, right? So because they are going to be the men that support the women someday in in this situation. So it's really amazing how far we've come with these conversations. I think about my grandmother who worked in the 1940s in in businesses, and she would be blown away by what, what we're talking about today. So I think that's quite amazing. So switching gears a little bit. I have always been intentional about diversity inclusion. I've known Audra now for almost 20 years, and it is the person that I am. It's just who I am professionally, personally. It definitely aligns with my beliefs. However, at the same time, I really try to understand and be patient when others are not where I am in their inclusive leadership journey. What advice would you give new leaders to help new leaders who may not know where to begin in creating a greater inclusion and equity in the workplace? I think that most leaders, I'm not talking about DEI or talent, I'm not talking about most leaders want to be inclusive. I think most people understand the value that that has. They understand that that is the best way to lead. They understand it's best to lead with empathy. They So all of those things. But I think often individual leaders, particularly where it's not our thing, where, where we don't have, where we don't spend all our time doing this sort of thing, a lot of people are terrified about using the wrong words, the wrong language. I really, I get really nervous and worried that I'm going to use the wrong language. I'm going to offend or upset somebody. And that's even though I spent my whole life trying to change the world and make things better. So I really think that 
part of it, first of all, is educate, educate yourself. And we we created these amazing things, which are really easy for, for people to create. We They're called the how-to guides. So how to have a conversation. And I was so determined that this was a real foundation of what we were going to provide for all our people. They're out there on our internet. Or, and, and basically, they are simple guides on how to have a conversation about race, how to have a conversation about gender identity, how to have a conversation about, yeah, and so how to have a conversation about neurodiversity, all of the things that people are really worried they are going to say the wrong thing. And they're so basic. They're sort of two or three pages. They, I think, are some of the most frequently used things that we have. So, And there's so much information out there online you can use to educate yourself. So that would be the first thing is educate. The second thing I'd say is listen. And I think we lost the art of listening during the pandemic, many of us. We were so busy, everything was on the screen. And guess what? How many of us, while we're on a call, we're also doing something in the background? Probably most of us. I'm guilty of that, of doing that. And so you're not listening. You've got sort of one ear and then, and it's truly listen. So it's find ways to hear from the people you work with. And then the third thing is to ask them what they would do. Tell me what you think, what could make this better? And again, that's the whole lived experience thing is everything we do, everything I, my team and I design and roll out, we build it with lived experience as hard. And that's so important. And then the final thing I would say is understand that it's not shiny, bright things that make things better. It's not an app. It's not a whatever gadget is out there. That's not what does it. What does it are the basics So effectively, treat everyone with respect. That, to me, is a simple fundamental. And if you do that and you remember to say thank you and all of the basics often get forgotten, you will be an inclusive leader and you'll get the best out of your life. Yeah, absolutely. So just incorporate it into who you are, basically. I love the fact that you're doing the training, though, because there's so much that changes, right? Along the way, we've seen a lot of changes over the past couple of years, and I'm trying to educate myself and educate my teams and even obviously, again, my family. So it, there's a lot of changes and you, I can see how it could be perceived as I don't want to say the wrong thing or I don't want to offend somebody. So I love that you're giving them those, those talking points and helping them along the way. I definitely think that the listening piece, I think that's a good very good point. Sometimes I'll just shut my eyes so that I can just listen and not look at my computer or my screen so that I'm so that I'm listening. Yeah. So I think that is fabulous. We already really kind of touched on this already. We talked about the mental health and I love that you have that as actually as a pillar in your strategy. That's another area that pre-COVID that was not a huge focus for many companies. Now we're hearing mental health being brought up over time again and again. So I already think I know the answer to this question, but I still wanted to kind of hone in on it a little bit more because I think it's important. How important is mental health and well-being to your overall diversity inclusion efforts at Deloitte, knowing that it is also a pillar, but how important would you say that pillar is? It's really important. It's one of, and it's led, it's CEO led. So it's leader led. So we say it's a priority. It is really a priority. Yes, definitely. And you will hear our leaders talking about it and you'll see our leaders living our values when it comes to that. One of our values is looking after each other and all of that good stuff you'd expect. The one thing that I thought might be worth talking about here as well is just not from the perspective of women, but actually all genders, where our millennials research, which 
has just launched today, actually, for this year. We do this huge piece of research on millennials and Generation Z. We've done it, I think it's now year 11 or 12. And in 2019, we added mental health questions in there for the first time. When it became a priority for us, we thought, right, we're going to go out and we will poll on it as well. And let's see what how that informs our strategy and let's let's help inform other companies. Now, obviously, that was fortuitous given what then happened with the pandemic. But what it showed was that stress and anxiety was really high pre-pandemic for those generations. Now, sadly, that has not changed. And Chris, you talked about, you know, you're hearing it talked about more since pandemic. You're hearing it talked about more. But the reality is, is that the stigma is still there. So I think a lot of organizations are talking about it. They will they have apps and all the lovely shiny things again. But the reality is that there is still a real challenge around disclosure levels. And we know that early intervention is really good. Research Deloitte in the UK has done with Mind, the amazing mental health charity, shows that the earlier you can support somebody, the more effective the outcome, better the outcome. And yet you still, even in the results released today, you still got, I think, just under half of those that took time off for stress and anxiety or for mental health reasons, not disclosing. They give their employer a totally different reason why. And by the way, you've still got around half of Generation Z and I think around sort of early 40% of millennials feel stressed or anxious all or most of the time. Okay. So that is what you're looking at. And then we know that often the situation data is worse when you look at it through an intersectional lens. So we know it's worse for women. We know that. We know it's worse for people of colour. We know that there is data that we have that sits behind it where you sort of have the double, triple whammy that then kicks in. And the percentage point difference for women, for example, you know, is around 10 percentage point difference in in stress and anxiety levels. So you just can't afford. It's so important for us. You know, a huge part of our workforce are that generation. So we can't afford to ignore it. If we want to get the best out of people, if we want them to be happy, and stay with us, because let's face it, we all want the best people to stay with us. It's it's non-negotiable. Yeah, and I can see that it is scary for people to disclose that. And I think the more that we talk about it and normalize it, but also senior leaders supporting it, it's going to take some time. But I think that's great that you all are doing that. I'm in awe of you. I really appreciate you letting me ask some of these questions. And I've, I learned a lot already, but I do want to pass it back over to my cohort, Audra to ask some additional questions. Thanks, Chris. What a great conversation, Emma. I love all of that mental health and menopause. I mean, these are things that have been so taboo in the past. So, so glad we can have that authentic dialogue today. Switching gears a little bit, Emma, you touched on this a little bit earlier. You talked about the big roles you've had. Sponsorship advocacy is really important to career mobility, especially for the advancement of women underrepresented minorities and diverse individuals. What is the best advice you receive from your own sponsor or mentor for your career? So I've had three really amazing sponsors in my career. All three of them have been at Deloitte, actually. And one of them I mentioned already, Sharon Thorne. I remember with her, she, when I got put on my, in my UK leadership role, it was a massive step up for me. And it was in the unknown. I was put in charge of talent when, when I didn't actually, I I like people, I had a really great team, but I wasn't an expert on that sort of thing at all. And, and I do remember her and I was sort of, I think I was a bit like a rabbit in headlights. And I remember her saying to me, you just need 
to slow down and you you benefit from talking to somebody just having somebody there that can give you a couple of hints and tips about how you can and it wasn't about making sort of perfecting me or fixing me it was literally somebody that could give me a practical tips on how to manage with this huge role and four-year-old daughters and client service stuff and so that's the sort of practical advice and I did see I got I saw a coach for a couple of sessions and honestly got a couple of nuggets that that I live by now and then I think the other thing for me has been being the advice on just being myself I am very authentic um I do say what I believe I think it's really important I'm a bit of a campaigner I don't like to see things that to me, it has. I, I like fairness, equity, respect, all of those things. I remember somebody saying to me, you know, don't lose that. When you start going up an arc, do not lose that. And the final bit, I had it, one of the sponsors I mentioned, who was a great sponsor in my business, as I was coming up with my client service role, he's a wonderful person. And he said to me, as you grow more senior, remember the impact of your words and actions becomes even greater. So remember, just always remember how you will be listened to. So things that you may have said that, and I would never have said anything offensive, but, you know, just remember that always think about the impact of your actions and words and that stayed with me as well. So, yeah, those, those broadly are the, probably the best bits of advice. That's amazing. I think that that's one thing I, every woman, I think, needs to have a good sponsor and a good advocate, you know, for sure. Every woman, I think, needs that. So switching gears a little further, diversity inclusion work is really meaningful, impactful. You have your senior leadership support. You just talked about how your CEO is leading your your mental health pillar, which is very impressive. It's clearly embedded in the Deloitte culture and values. How are you measuring and reporting the results of your global diversity team's efforts? First of all, I'm a great one for the sort of informal feedback. So the qualitative rather than quantitative. For me, things like when I go onto the portal that keeps all the stuff that we create and you see comments around things like the Can You See Me films or and you see people. I had a colleague sent me a note to say, I just wanted you to know that I watched this and I learned and it's changed my view about things. Wow. That to me is literally worth its weight in gold. So that makes everything. That's the sort of qual bit, the causative bit. And then from the quant bit, we do a global talent experience survey every year. So that looks at the stuff that is part of our global talent strategy, including my inclusion strategy. And we, you know, it gets responded to by a large number of our people around the world. And that enables us to see improvement, hopefully, in our schools. And we design the questions according to our strategy. That's the other bit for me. Obviously, things like retention data as well in country level is really important. But it's that data that comes through the sort of survey. And then actually, the other thing for me is it's the people that are happy to disclose who they really are in the workplace. So I have advisory groups for various elements of our strategy. I have an LGBT plus advisory group. I have the most amazing, amazing group of people that have lived experience that identify across the LGBT plus spectrum. They're incredible and they're happy to talk to me and be themselves and give me their views. That to me, I have the same from neurodiversity, from a disability inclusion perspective. That shows me that we are, we're getting there. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And also it shows psychological safety. They feel safe enough to talk to you. They don't feel concerned about sharing who they are. And that's really, June is coming up as a pride month and we're doing our preparations, I'm sure as most companies are as well. And a lot of issues, there's still a lot of people closeted in the workplace because they don't feel psychologically safe enough to share their true, true authentic selves. So exactly right. And I think in some of the countries around the world, it's you know, illegal. that's difficult. Yeah. And it's you've either got legal issues or you've got that sort of in semicolons and quote marks of culture, which gets thrown about so much. And I think we can change that culture. We need to talk about this stuff. We need to be advocates. Well, Emma, we could talk to you all day long, but I know that you have a very busy executive with twins. That's our sister friend <laughs> commentary. Right. I, th- I still want to start <laughs> that support group. <laughs> I've got one last question for you. I'd like to ask all our guests, you know, what do you want your legacy to be that your family remembers the most? Oh, do you know, this is such a difficult one because I have the sort of corporate answer and then I have, and then I saw the words, my family. The thing, one of my daughters, when she was like five years old or something, she turned around to one of her friends and the mom actually called me often and said, I have to tell you what your daughter said about you. And she said, my mom is really busy at work, but she still plays with me. <laughs> Aww. So for me, and that's always been my whole ethos, is that I needed to make time for them. So honestly, for me, of what legacy? Well, I want to have two amazing girls who look back and think my mum played with us and my mum spent time with us. But look, she also changed the world. Ooh, and you are definitely changing the world, Emma Cod. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's amazing. Well, thank you again. And thank you, Emma. Such powerful nuggets to our listeners. Thank you, Chris. You've been an amazing co-host. Thanks for having me. I also want to give a big thank you to our thousands of global listeners in 60 plus countries. We appreciate your support. In the words of Nadia Murad, the world has only one border. It's called humanity. The differences between us are small compared to our shared humanity. Put humans first. So when you celebrate equity, diversity, and inclusion, you celebrate humanity. Be sure to spread the word and tag our hashtag diversity deep dive podcast. Real diversity happens when everyone is actively engaged and working together for positive change. Let's keep the conversation going. Please download more episodes of the diversity deep dive podcast. Until next time, seek out ways to make a positive difference in the world, your workplace and community. Thank you.